Hi everyone and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimize are thrilled to host this podcast series where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host, Pat Bradshaw, and today, absolutely delighted to be joined by Rebecca Gabriel. So, Rebecca, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me on, Patrick. No problem at all. How is your uh, your podcast game? Have you done anything like this in the past? Podcasts. I've done a number of interviews, but this is something new for me, so looking forward to it. Thank you. Oh, great stuff. Great stuff. Well, um, hopefully it shouldn't be too far out of your comfort zone, as I always say to everybody that's people similar to yourself that have done sort of all sorts of webinars that I've had the pleasure to sit in on it's uh, hopefully much easier than that so <laughs> but yeah hopefully you enjoy it anyway but excellent well like I say thanks for joining us Rebecca I think a logical place to start and as I do with all these things is a little bit of a journey to date really so how you got into risk management um, a bit of a timeline of your career up to this point including the role that you're doing at the moment so yeah fire away. Thank you. So I grew up in India and my dad was an aeronautical engineer. My dad used to tell me that engineers built dreams. Right from a very young age, I was extremely fascinated with the world of infrastructure and particularly it meant a big deal back in India. Because, you know, if you built a house, that meant you had roof above your head, etc. And I used to be very fascinated with all the bridges, the hospitals, the various rail structures, etc. that was being built. And when I visited my dad, who was in the Indian Navy, the runways. So I knew, even as a little girl, that I wanted to be a civil engineer. So I got into civil engineering by choice, did my civil engineer back in India, and then came over to the UK to do my master's in business administration. And I did a thesis on lean thinking and the application of lean thinking in the private sector and how does it differ from that of in public sector. And while I was doing my thesis, I was fortunate enough to be able to join Jacobs. And I started off as a structural engineer. But very quickly, I knew that I had far-reaching dreams and visions in terms of where I wanted to take my career. I was able to move on to the consultancy side of Jacobs, which was then called Leafages, and then act on various different kinds of roles, which I think I was really, really very fortunate to be able to do that. So I acted as a site engineer, worked as a consultant for many consultancies, undertaking various roles on makeup programs, sat as an independent reviewer right as early on as in 2007, you know, for Aircraft Carrier Alliance, one of the largest programs at that particular point in time for Ministry of Defence. And I worked on a number of makeup programs for Highway Singular Network Rail, etc. I, at that particular point in time, risk really fascinated me. When he sat down with a client, especially at the outset, trying to help them understand what their vision was for the next five years, help them formulate their feasibility into an viable project, 
help them seek funding, one of the things that one must do is understand the risk associated with the you know, feasibility, the viability stage of the program or the project that they were conceiving. So I sort of self-taught myself risk, and I was really fortunate enough to have some really good mentors along the way. So, and I started to undertake risk reviews as well for a number of clients, in addition to working on business cases, et cetera. I got an opportunity to be a part of Transport for Greater Manchester. So I got seconded into Transport for Greater Manchester and very quickly become a, became a client guide and took on a role uh, to lead the project and programs risk team, uh, so PFGM. They were going through a really big shift at that point in time. They were growing in their size and stature. So that was my first full-time foray into building a risk team from scratch, you know, help shape the risk team to match the phase and size of what DFGM was going to be. From there on, then I moved on to ACOM and then to um, Arcadis, which is where I was prior to joining HSU. My last role with Arcadis was that of the Regional Infrastructure Director for the North of UK, yeah. which also included acting as a project director for a number of flagship projects. But I had, by this point in time, recognized and understood that risk management was really key and fundamental to the success of achieving the objectives of a project program or an organization. Yeah. But when an opportunity came about with HSU, I couldn't say no. So today I'm the risk director at HSU. So I lead the entire risk function at HSU. So I've got my enterprise wide and the project and the program delivery arm under me, Patrick. And I've enjoyed my journey so far with HSU. Amazing. So hope you don't mind me asking, Rebecca, how long have you been working, I guess, in the heavy industries or infrastructure and then from there, how long have you been working in risk? So I have been in the infrastructure space for the last 19 to 20 years. And risk is something that I have been working on as a part of everything that I've been doing. So when I would go and undertake an independent review of a major program or a project, risk would be an element of the review that I am undertaking. So not necessarily under the banner of the risk manager, but yeah. as an when you're going and undertaking into uh, and reviewed. So I started to do risk as a part of everything else that I was doing in 2006. And that now makes it sound as of quite a while ago. And I'm looking at the timeline, 15 years, and yeah. dabbling on and off in the risk space. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I always, um, I must be a broken record for everybody who's listened to all the episodes, but I absolutely love this part of the episode when you get to hear everybody's sort of journey into risk management. And like I say, some people often just completely stumble on risk management. Some people as part of their role in infrastructure, whether it be project management or or something like that, just take a real uh, a real shine to it. And people like myself who didn't know what it was about about 18 months ago and completely changed careers to move into it. So uh, so no, thanks for that, Rebecca. It sounds like you've had a, um, a really incredible career so far. So as everyone can probably tell from the, the, top, the title of the episode today, we're going to be discussing risk management in major programs. So as always, Rebecca, I do offer all of our guests the opportunity to choose the topic they want to discuss. And normally it's because it's something either close at hand or they're particularly passionate about or something like that. Why did you choose to discuss this particular topic and, and why do you think it's particularly important? 
you're very correct, Patrick. The topic that I wanted to explore today is something that is really close to my heart. How to get risk management right in a major program. There's a perception out there, which I believe, many people believe, that a program is simply a larger, perhaps a longer version of a project, which is not the case. Yeah. Despite the similarities, I think they are very, very different. Very briefly, if you look at APM's guidance, now I'm going back many years ago, a project <laughs> is a, you know, a single task that delivers a tangible output. Whereas a program is a collection of different projects put together. In a project is quite often very temporary in nature and the, they aren't designed to last very long at all. But program is quite strategic and how we approach program is fundamentally very different because they need to be managed and coordinated in such a way that we obtain the benefits from them in a very strategic manner. Yeah. You know, they usually have a longer vision. They have a long-term objective. And it's a framework of related projects aligned in perhaps a specific sequence. They have predictable, but repeatable output elements, perhaps. Then if I look at that from the context of HS2 itself, you know, uh, I, it is, uh, I look at the network, 345 miles of new high-speed track, you know, it would be connecting 30 million people. It's staggering when we start to go through the stats. So for me, it is very important to understand when we're talking, especially from the risk management's perspective, that it is different when we talk, look at it from a project to that of a program. And that's something I wanted to explore a little bit more through your show today. Excellent. Yeah, I think we've, as everyone's probably seen, we've touched on some really interesting topics throughout the first season and uh, and some around sort of the nuances of risk management and some are a little bit more technical. But when you mentioned that this was something you wanted to discuss, it was something that I was I was really keen to explore as well, because I, but only being sort of a 12, 18 months into my career, it's not something that I had the opportunity to speak to someone um, in a position such as yourself to uh, to explore that. So uh, some of that's excellent, Rebecca. Thank you. So just to jump straight into it then, really. So as always, as I always try to do, sorry, um, on the podcast, Rebecca, I try and sort of start from the beginning and try and introduce the topic as primitively as possible. So obviously, HS2 is a very major program, is a very large major program and, and probably one of the most uh, well-known in the UK. Um, what point is a program considered major and what characteristics does it have? Uh, the Oxford Handbook defines mega project as a project over $1 billion, which is $740 million. So the biggest difference is that the projects deal with delivering strictly defined outputs because it's short space and time yeah. within a specific time scale and budget. Whereas programs deal with delivering outputs that benefit the entire organization and their outputs are far more strategic. Put simply together, projects involves doing things right. Yeah. And program involves doing the right things. I think it's a similar phrase, but very different meaning. I was thinking about it the other day because I was speaking with some of our grads and they asked me a very similar question in terms of, you know, can I simplify a project versus a program? And rather than an infrastructure example, this is an example that uh, I could come up with, you know, let's look at a company who wants to build and market a new mobile phone. 
yeah. this program would be collection of different projects, like one for updating the operating system, the another for sourcing the resources, the raw materials, you know, the legalities, etc. So we need to get each of the projects right, manage the dependencies to achieve the overarching objective of the program itself. Yes, the Oxford Handbook defines the financials, you know, anything over 740 million, et cetera. But a few of the things such as, you know, both produce outputs, but the tasks, one very tactical, the other very strategic time frame, one shot, one shot and one longer time frame itself, you know. So one in terms of, you know, effectiveness, compliance, perhaps, you know, just short-term satisfaction, but the other, in terms of, for instance, with Hecatstube, it has an overarching vision to tie into the UK's vision for high-speed rail, for instance. So I think they're fundamentally very different when you talk in terms of a project that have a program, Patrick. Yeah, certainly. And, and and one of the main one of the main benefits of doing this podcast is like you say, you have these potentially like boilerplate definitions, whether it's in like the Oxford Handbook in the Pram Guide or whatever the case may be, but it's actually learning from people such as yourself actual application and and translating that theory into application which really helps myself and and I'm hopefully it really helps um everybody listening as well so we'll we're going to dive into that in a little bit more detail in a second but thanks for for going through that Rebecca so I suppose as we lean a little bit more in towards the risk management side of things and Rebecca in terms of different programs and stuff so how in your experience if any does delivering risk management differ between varying size of programs and thus how do you effectively manage risks on a program as large and as complex as HS2 I mean is it just a matter of scaling the team to the size of the undertaking or is there anything else at play at all? So HS2 is not only a mega project and right uh, like you rightly said Patrick it is also a complex project we are dealing with different phases of the project life cycle at different stages across HS2 so at HS2, we have three fundamental stadium phases. So phase one, that is in delivery. That is what I think a lot of the public would recognize and understand. Phase 2A a is going to be in delivery in the coming year. So we're preparing for what the contract, etc. And then we've got phase 2B, which is circa three years behind phase 2A. So still in the development stages. So if you think in terms of the scale of HS2, that hopefully makes sense. Yes. So what we would understand is, it's pretty complex. It's not only really large, it's pretty, pretty, pretty complex. And each phase of HS2 is its own project, but all running simultaneously. So how do we do risk management at HS2? How do we set up and run an effective team that needs to enable and service the different stakeholders, you know, the different needs, etc., and yet achieve some form of consistency so that people know this is how HS2 does risk. It is a challenge. It is definitely a challenge and the size and scale not been done before in Europe. So I have now been in this role for nearly one year. And one of the very first things that I had to do was establish the risk team that we have here. So I have a dedicated team for my enterprise risk. So we have the corporate and the functional risks so that comes under the enterprise risk management, but also striving the consistency and guidance for how the delivery and the operation risks would be managed. Then the phase one that is in delivery, which is where you know we've got um, IPPs, integrated project teams working with our joint ventures. I have a risk team of 15 that's a completely different skill set. 
then the phase 2a which are going to be in contracting have to carefully think through you know what do i need to bring in, into this team because they would be in contract so an understanding of contract etc was really key and then i've got the phase 2b which is going through its development so i need to help the business understand and in turn the government that this is the contingency that i will need to manage phase to be in the future. Yes. But how do I know that the contingency is right? So bringing the people with the right skill set of having worked uh, at the front end because risk management needs to be set right, right at the outset. You know, the cost of change becomes very expensive later on. And in addition to, you know, making sure that we have, it's not the size of the team, it's the right team to support each of the different phases you know, making sure that we have some fundamental principles that we work to. And so I had to bring all the risk team under me. And as a risk function, we sit under the central PMO. And the risk team, then they have a home where they belong to, but they are matrix back into the delivery teams that they serve in. So they sort of have a dotted line of reporting for the teams that they sit in with. So what that means is they have a consistency and guidance that can be tailored for their faces that they're doing into. We are bound by certain things. So we have certain guiding principles, which is based on ISO 31000, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So we make sure that we are near to that, et cetera. And then at the local level, because I like to call each of the faces my local teams, I have a bespoke risk management plan. While I know, you know, there are, you've got to identify, you've got to assess, uh, you know, you've got to evaluate, et cetera, the five phases of risk management. Yeah. But what does it mean for phase one? And what does it mean for phase 2A? And what does it mean for phase 2B? So I've got bespoke risk management plans for each of the directorates and that they're tailored, taking into account the stage that the phase is at. And that is really, really fundamental. That's refined. It's not a static document because we are changing regularly. Um, then, you know, supported by our overarching framework, hopefully we drive an effective risk management culture across HS2, Patrick. A lot more complex, I think, than one would think of it from the outset. Yeah, no, of course. I think the reason... I was coming with this uh, question, Rebecca, is obviously, as, as we've touched on, the sort of the skills and the capabilities of the risk team is that obviously risk management is risk management is risk management, and it can, in theory, be applied across anything. I guess I was thinking in terms of um, sort of a sub-question of, of what you just mentioned is when you look for, for risk, professional, risk professionals in joining these sorts of pro programs, like major and mega programs, if experience in previous mega and major programs is applicable or if somebody hasn't necessarily worked in that sort of environment before do you think it would be a quite a big I don't want to use the word culture shock but do you think it would be slightly harder to adjust? Well just by nature it's not a steady state organization it, it is large it is complex we've got very different stakeholders but the beauty of it is also that we allow a space for professional to grow across all the stages of the program, yeah. which you don't normally get with many organizations. So I can have my risk manager join in at the development stage, move into the delivery stage, and then hopefully see the program through the operation stage as well. And the ability with the three phases that I have move my risk managers around. We also have differing levels within our team. So I have assistant risk managers, risk managers, senior risk managers, and then I've got the phase leads and I've got the enterprise risk manager as well. So there are 
different growth opportunities. So yes, knowledge of risk management and how risk management is done in an infrastructure environment is beneficial, but it's not imperative that they've worked in a large and complex and mega project before because we recognize and understand that, you know, it just is unique. There are not many of these roundabout, you know, do we do they have the skills and capabilities to um, that can be translated as something that we look at and give them the opportunity to contribute to a program where they can leave the legacy behind. But having said that, the skills across the senior roles you know, within the phase one, the phase two, and the phase two B yeah. are very, very, very different because of the phase two A, you need to understand people need to have an understanding of. What's an hybrid deposit? You know, what are the risks associated with that? You know, why the risks associated with land and property? So we've got a dedicated land and properties risk manager. You know, uh, you know, wow, what are what are those sort of risks that we're talking about? Delivery risks are very different, uh, but the development risks are really key because they help inform the contingency that we get allocated against. So that's important. So the skill set at the senior level across the phase one and phase two and the phase two B are different. You know, the understanding of the contract mechanism, what risk to retain, what to be passed over to help our organization take those informed decisions are important. But for someone who's starting out, you know, someone who's a risk manager, you know, the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to gain of, uh, knowledge and the opportunity to contribute is enormous with HS2 Patrick. Excellent. No, that's brilliant. Thanks, Rebecca. So I know we've uh, we've touched on risk culture a little bit, um, previously, so I'd be interested to to investigate that a little bit more. Um, as most people listening to this probably know, risk culture is obviously a huge part of of risk management, and and without effective risk culture, it could make risk management pretty ineffective. So, do you feel obviously it's important to drive effective risk management in obviously not just HS two, but any any organisation, and and obviously from a stakeholder management and, and a buy in perspective, and and what your experience has been with like that through your career and, and with HS two. Not just for risk, I think identifying your stakeholders, identifying who your influences are, who etc. is really key to the successful delivery of any project program or activity. So, you know, we all know what a stakeholder is. It's either an individual or a group or an organization that can affect or be affected by the activities that we're undertaking. But in order to ensure that there is an effective, not only just an effective, but a proactive, because you don't want risk management to become a reactive risk management, but an effective risk management is in place, it is very important right from the outset to identify, you know, who your key stakeholders are, you know, who's going to be affected, who can affect the work that you're undertaking or understand the dependencies and involve them as a part of your risk management process so in your at the outset, you know, make sure that you've got some representation, et cetera. Uh, in terms of the risks, but the level of involvement obviously will depend upon the identified risks and how stakeholders are expected to be affected by, you know, a phase or the proposed objective of that particular phase and the decision-making process. And we must not forget that effective risk management is not about having the right risks or coming out with the right number, right number. Hopefully we all are technical and mathematical enough to understand that we can play around with the numbers to get the output that we want. But it is about minimizing threats, maximizing your opportunities, 
helping achieve the objectives. And in order to help achieve the objectives, the buy-in from the stakeholder is so, so fundamental to drive the rest to own, the rest to have those conversations. And that you're working towards the common objectives and goals, you know, at key milestones, you need to be revisiting your stakeholder list. You need to be understanding whom should we be engaging at this particular stage in time, because you need to have proactive and effective and smart response actions in place against each of the risks and also have those supporters in place who can help you push the desired effect forward with the organization, with HSD even outside the organization as well. So it is important to involve them right from the outset. So identify, involve them at key milestones, bring them in draw on the knowledge as well in terms of what they know and ensure that you know they understand the issues they understand the objectives and how is everything you know especially with risk management that it doesn't become a tick in the box exercise benefit that we are trying to drive as well that's no. stakeholder management is really key patrick Absolutely. So obviously, I know you've touched on a few things there, Rebecca, on how to gain the confidence of, of key stakeholders and, and stuff like that. Do you feel that it differs at all in these major mega programs and, and projects compared to, say, smaller programs and, and projects that you've been involved in previously? Definitely. It, it does. You know, all, uh, it changes across a project and program really massively, Patrick. So, you know, uh, at a small scale project, so I've been involved in projects and programs of various sizes, uh, you know, building a cycle uh, hub for a 50k, to, you know, uh, programs, you know, in, in terms of billions, etc. So if for a cycle hub, which is a 50k, you need to understand your key risks, you need to roughly understand, you know, if 50% of your risks were to materialize, how much money you need to be setting aside, etc. As a form of a contingency, so risk register with an output to help inform the contingency is good. But here we are talking about billions in terms of contingency, your phase one alone. So we spoke about the definition of mega projects previously, 740 million. Yeah. And the phase one alone uh, in terms of, you know, and uh, is 44, uh, circa 44 billion we're talking wow. about here. So, so it is in a completely different tier scale and size. So when I come up with the number and I say, this is what I think is a contingency that you should be setting aside for a phase one, a phase two, phase two um, B, et cetera. There needs to be confidence in our output. So yes, you need to have a robust process in place. You need to have uh, an assurance process to check your fundamentals of your Monte Carlo simulation. So you have your quantitative cost and schedule risk analysis outputs. But in addition to that, we also do benchmarking exercise at the outset. So for cost, we do something called reference class forecasting. So reference class forecasting or um, comparison class forecasting, it's simply a method of predicting the future by looking at similar past situations and what the outcomes might have been. So there are three fundamental steps. You identify relevant reference class of past similar projects. Now, there's no good, you know, comparing a project that you can't compare, you know, then establish the probability distribution for the selected reference class. And compare specific project with distribution. So you look at your project and you say, this is what my outturn is and what was similar outturn, et cetera. So you do look at the benchmarking as well. So what when then we are doing is we are doing a triangulated 
approach and we help the government and the department undertake an you know, informed decision in terms of, you know, where are we in the current stage? Does a risk exposure look right? Does a contingency time, what the expectation is, et cetera? And then hopefully, you know, it would help us overcome some of the barriers as well for risk management in terms of, you know, a, very often of the optimism bias creeps in, you know, so say, or, you know, the systematic outset view has not been taken into consideration. So that's something that's very common. And the unknown unknowns, you know, how do you deal with that in the space of risk? So when you have a triangulated approach, you have a risk register built up from bottom up, and then you haven't been talking exercise, et cetera. That really, really, really helps you in terms of gaining the confidence of the stakeholders when you go to them with an output based on the different approaches. Yeah. No, it's really interesting that you should mention um, reference class forecasting. We, uh, we've got a, um, in few, not in season one, sorry, it'll be in a couple of seasons time with uh, Oxford Global Projects doing a, an episode exclusively about reference class forecasting. So it's only recently that I've been sort of trying to do my own research, screw up my knowledge on that. So, uh, so Bono, it's really interesting to hear that. Thanks, Rebecca. Other than that, I think just from my perspective, I'd be interested to hear how you've seen project management and, and project management's perception of risk management evolve during your time in the industry, if there has been any evolution of that at all, really? No, definitely. Risk management has evolved leaps and bounds during my time. I just figured out in your show that I've been dabbling with risk for the past 15, 16 years. Yeah. So <laughs> from being a tick in the box exercise to now being an integral part of the decision-making process, because, you know, by nature, construction industry or uh, the infrastructure space is something that, you know, people are very diverse in terms of, oh, just throw a few gangs of men in and you can get it um, done on time if you're going to be running short on time, etc. From that sort of an attitude to now understanding and recognizing the importance of risk management and the role that it plays in helping understand risk-based decision. So that's the phrase that we use at HS2, that the decisions need to be based on the risks. And also understanding that, you know, the objectives are not just to come on time and on schedule now. It is far more. It is quality, it is a reputation, and integration of everything amalgamated together is their understanding. So risk management is on the right track, is on an upward journey, and now is seen as an integral functional pillar, such as cost, such as schedule. And it's, it's impossible, definitely, show. Okay. I think it was um, it was in an episode recently where I spoke, I think it was with Deepak Mystery and uh, Richard Bendor-Jones, where we gave the quite sobering statistic that 98% of projects are either late or not to budget. Um, only 2% of projects are a success, which... I, I found it absolutely staggering. And I, th I don't know if that's a reflection of, like you say, it's risk management is gradually started to play more of a more of a pivotal role in, in, in project management and in obviously the development of projects and programs. But it's, um, no, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear your, um, your insight on that, Rebecca. So did you say you've been working on HS2 for the past year, is it? Sorry. Yeah, so I joined at the end of November last year. So it's been a little over a year. It feels like I've been here forever because we <laughs> run a 300 mile seminar on a daily basis. But it's a fantastic team to work with and the opportunities and the challenges that we come across are like none that you would come across with the other organizations. It really stretches you, grows you 
brings out the best in you. And I'm enjoying my time with Dennis Kilpatrick. And for us, you know, working together with cost and schedule. So the cost schedule and risk, they work really, really closely together. And all the three functions tie into PMO as well. So then we drive the consistency across the organization. It's a fascinating piece. And, you know, I get taken by surprise every time I see one of our videos. You know, it's, it's you are there, you're talking to the team, but when you see it, it's, it's nothing can put that in words in terms of the scale and the size. And hopefully the little part that you are able to play in a project uh, as it's a project that you have an opportunity to leave hopefully in legacy behind for the coming generations. Definitely, definitely. And anybody who hasn't had the opportunity, Rebecca did a, um, a really brilliant presentation on the uh, NIRM SIG. It was a uh, it was a webinar recently, wasn't it? It was about a month or so ago. Um, so I'll, I'll put the link to that into the description for the podcast notes if uh, if you want to go and give that a listen, if you've enjoyed this. No, Rebecca, it's been absolutely fascinating to, to chat with you about all this today. Like I say, it's something that from a risk management perspective, I've always only been sort of a 12 to 18 months into my career. I've just looked at it from risk management is risk management, risk management, and not necessarily considered how it's, how it's implementation and its culture can differ over different sizes of projects and programs and stuff. So hopefully everybody else has enjoyed it as well. But as a final piece, um, as I do with every episode, Rebecca, if you could give yourself a piece of advice whilst you were at the start of your career that you know now that you didn't know then, what would that piece of advice be? Definitely. So Patrick, like I said earlier on, that I moved over from India to do my MBA here. And, you know, I was always about wanting to do the things right. But something that I realized with time is, you know, you've really got to understand your key players and understand the communication preferences earlier on. You know, very quickly that starts to play into how you might prepare for a meeting, how you might want to translate the same output, because you need to be able to speak their language to get and drive your point across. It's not about just presenting the output. It's not just about, you know, you know, doing the right thing. Because let's face it, in an infrastructure industry, you are going to at some point come across, you know, difficult stakeholders, you know, differing opinions, etc. But helping understand your stakeholders and the different communication styles, especially for someone who's not from UK as well, because I'm not known for my diplomacy at all. So for me, that is something that was a journey to very closely observe my stakeholders. We all want the same objective. You know, we want to successfully deliver the program. But, you know, different, everybody wants different things for that. So I think that for me, if I'd have known that quite earlier on, you know, some of your rework, et cetera, you know, you start to think through your reports for the particular audience, your presentation for the audience. The content might be still the same, but how we deliver is going to be different completely different. So I think that is very, very essential for me. And I say that to the uh, my graduates as well, you know, learn to understand your stakeholders and adapt your style of communication and you'll go a long way. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. I think it's really interesting. I think this is episode number number 10 or 11 and I'm yet to have a duplicate piece of advice, which I find really interesting, but no, it's, it's so true. I think it's something when I was going through my training in regards to risk culture and stuff is like you say, there's the different personality types. Someone might react really well to sort of something that's really, really high level, really headliney stuff. Someone might react really well to all the intricate ins and outs of the detail and stuff. So understanding your stakeholders and understanding who's going to, what makes them tick really is vital, isn't it? So no, that's, um, that's a brilliant piece of advice. Perfect. So last, last point from me, Rebecca, if anybody 
listening today wants to get in touch with you, whether it's in regards to anything risk management or um, or to discuss or any questions off the topic we've, we've talked about today, what would be the best way for them to get in touch? I'd be more than happy to hear from them if they could just reach out to me via LinkedIn. I am not very prompt in getting back, but always do make a point to respond back to anyone who reaches out to me via LinkedIn. Thank you. Excellent. No problem. Well, I'll, uh, I'll certainly put a, um, a link to your LinkedIn profile in the podcast notes as well. So um, if anybody wants to get in touch, Rebecca, just follow that. But excellent, Rebecca. Thanks so much for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it. It's been a, uh, a long time coming, trying to get diaries aligned over the past couple of months, but we've managed it just before Christmas. So, um, so yeah, thanks again, Rebecca. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick, for the opportunity and having a fantastic time over the Christmas period as well. Thank you. You too. No problem, Rebecca. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimize on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time, where we'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.